But I want to say welcome back, uh, not just to church, but welcome back to celebrating the most extraordinary week um, of Holy Week that we celebrate what Jesus did for us. Welcome back. And I want to invite you to journey with us in the amazing story of Jesus, our Savior, this week. And don't do it alone. I want to say, you know, as you're kind of preparing yourself for Easter, you know, Easter brings a lot of things. It brings family dynamics, brings all kinds of stuff. But let the most important thing be really just reveling in the story of what Jesus has done for you and me, okay? And don't do it alone. First of all, I know that at least one of our Bible studies is like smack dab in the middle of the story of Jesus' passion for us. So you can come on a, a Wednesday night and just dive straight into this story with us if you like. Uh, we also have, um, I've got it here, and we can put up an image on the screen as well. We have a Holy Week guide that you can pick up one of these at the Connect Center, or we have like an online version, which is even better because all of the, the media stuff that this references is just there for a click for you if you go to the website. Um, it has scripture readings for every single day to mark Holy Week. It has music to listen to, videos to watch, to really just help immerse us in the story of Jesus. So if you're interested in that, you can scan the QR code. You can go back to the Connect Center. There are more QR codes everywhere because, I don't know, we kind of like QR codes, I guess. Um, but don't miss out on the story. Whatever you do and whatever way you choose, uh, get lost in the story of Jesus this Easter season. Join us for Good Friday service. We have a kind of like a one-hour-long communion service on Good Friday at 6 p.m., and we want to invite you to come and just remember the sacrifice that he made for us. And then obviously Sunday morning's coming, and we're excited to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And yes, as CJ mentioned, we have lots of sugar in the building. That's going to be fine. Um, but we really want to invite you, yeah, grab a friend. Grab somebody who needs to understand uh, that Jesus isn't in the grave anymore. Amen? So let's celebrate. Um, today we're, we're diving into the story of Palm Sunday. We're beginning our Easter series. And as we turn our hearts and our attention back to the sacrifice of Jesus again, we want to consider the crowns that we see throughout the story of this very important week. The crowns. We've titled this series The Crown. Each of the moments, the snapshots that we get into Holy Week, uh, it, it holds tremendous meaning for our lives if we'll slow down and let the story speak to us. You know, Jesus engages us page by page as we look at this story, and, and I pray that you will find new life in him this Easter season. Um, but really, as we, as we go through, we see that everywhere we turn, someone's got a crown that they want to give to Jesus. There's a crown that they're trying to give him that he's rejecting. There's a crown that he chooses for us. And ultimately, there's a crown that the Lord bestows upon him in glory. Amen? So let's um, pick up the story from John's gospel. We're going to set the tone for this whole week together. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 12. Let me just ask as we kind of get going here, have you ever had one of those weeks where kind of everything seems to change in a couple of days? How many of you guys know that a lot can change over the course of a week? Right? What we're going to look at in the story of John's gospel here is Palm Sunday. Uh, and it's kind of like looking at the good moments, the calm before the storm in a way. A lot changes in this week. But we want to look and focus on the lead up to some of the, the kind of the hallmark events of Easter. Because we tend to focus a lot on the weekend, on Friday and Sunday of Easter week. But what happens before Jesus is arrested holds incredible significance for us. We see the changing perceptions of who Jesus is, the reactions to him, the desires for him that people had, the way people tried to mold him into their image, 
instead of letting God remake them in his. And by Friday, as we see through this week, the story is a lot different than what we're about to read. But let's start at the beginning. We're going to start in verse 1. Actually, we're going to back it up a little bit. So John 12, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 19. It says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, which is typical, while Lazarus was among those reclining with him at the table. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Now look how the whole world has gone after him. On this Palm Sunday, I want us to look at the crown of the crowd, the crown they had picked out for him. Before we dive in, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this true story of your unstoppable love for us. Lord, I pray that you would draw our eyes and our hearts, our minds, our time, our focus back to your story, back to the gospel, the good news that you have overcome for us. Lord, I pray that as we enter this Easter week, Holy Week, Lord, I pray that you would stir things up in our hearts, that you would clear space in our schedules for us to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts that you would remind us. You know, so many times we see things out of control in our world. Lord, you never, ever, ever waver. You have always been in complete control, and we just simply need to look to you. I pray that you'd remind us of all of this and instruct us this morning. We give you permission, Holy Spirit, to come and change our hearts, to speak to us clearly about our lives, and we will celebrate your goodness to us the whole way through. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So cometh the hour, cometh the man. He's riding into Jerusalem. 
This is the triumphal entry of Jesus. But as we look at the story, and we see where it goes in this crazy week, we see that the excitement of the crowd in this moment is kind of short-lived, isn't it? Some of you guys know this story. You know that things change pretty rapidly. It's kind of a flash in the pan, their excitement for Jesus. Because Jesus, ultimately, he wasn't what they expected. He wasn't what they expected. Now, have you ever had a moment when you met somebody, or maybe you ran into somebody, and they're not what you expected? Anybody have a moment like that before? Maybe you were talking on the phone to somebody. You've had many conversations on the phone, and you finally met them in person, and they, they look totally different than you expected. You're like, wow, you are not what I imagined. I've had that moment. Or maybe you've read a book, and then the movie comes out, and the actor assigned to playing your favorite character, and you're like, hang on a minute, that really messed with me. That doesn't look, that's not what I expected, right? I have a friend named Sam, and he loves the Jack Reacher novels. There's like a billion of these things. That guy is making money hand over fist on Jack Reacher, okay? And he loves, he's read every Jack Reacher novel, my friend Sam. But when the movie first came out, he totally boycotted the movie. Why? It's really simple. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is the reason why. Not because Tom Cruise is a crazy person, but when Sam heard that there was a movie coming out with his favorite character, he saw five foot six Tom Cruise slated to play six foot five, 250 pound Jack Reacher. Right? And he goes, it, it, I'm not seeing that movie. Why? That's not him. It's not him. That's not the guy. They screwed it up. And he's not wrong. I came across that picture because I found a Facebook group called Campaign to Stop Tom Cruise from Playing Jack Reacher. People are upset about this. Right? <laughs> they got convincing arguments. That, do we need to say any more? Mug shots, right? Let's be honest. The casting director kind of he kind of messed that one up a little bit. Maybe he didn't read the book. But it was a clear case of, you know, you got the wrong guy. You dropped the ball here. You should have picked better. He doesn't fit the bill, as we'd say. As we focus in on the story, something similar goes down in Jerusalem this week. Jesus comes into the city and he makes no mistake. In his actions on Palm Sunday, he is claiming to be the long-expected Messiah. He deliberately fulfills Zechariah's prophecy about the Messiah. In Zechariah 9, 9, we read it. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, your daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Luke's gospel, you know, right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we're introduced to a whole cast of characters with the birth of Jesus who are literally living for this moment. Literally, with everything within them, like Anna and Simeon, they're of those who were living with expectation for the Messiah's arrival. He was the long-expected Messiah. They cheered him along that road into Jerusalem. But even though they cheered him and lifted him up in this moment, it is short-lived because, yes, a lot can change over the course of a week. As they cried out, Hosanna, which literally means, oh, save us. Maybe that day it was more like, hey, please tell us you're the guy we think you are. Please tell us you're who we hope you are. Please tell us that the time is now, the wait is over. The crowd that day had a very specific thing in mind for Jesus. They wanted a man who could, you know, come along and dismiss the Romans, kind of melt Roman hearts in just one look of his eye. They, they wanted the six foot five, 250 pound version of Jesus. 
right? They wanted to crown him king, but with the wrong crown. They had one all picked out for him that said, conquering, victorious, military hero, political figurehead. And it just wasn't what Jesus had in mind on Palm Sunday. For them, not only would their Messiah set them free from the oppressive roaming government over them, but they would rise then to become the dominant force in the world. The good times were going to roll. When Jesus showed up, you know, he doesn't quite fit the bill that they had picked out for him. Maybe they missed what Isaiah said about him in Isaiah 53 too, where Isaiah says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, he wasn't going to look the part. He wasn't going to fit that bill that they had picked out for him. On Palm Sunday, what we see is they were choosing him, exalting him as their Messiah, not the Messiah. And there's a difference there. There's a difference there. How many of you guys know that sometimes our own expectations can get the better of us? Maybe you've been there. I know I have been there. Maybe you've had this experience when you have your heart set on something so much, you've drummed up so much excitement in your own, in your own spirit for what's to come, and when something arrived and it was different than you expected, there's no way you can help but to feel a total letdown, right? You're somewhere stuck between confused and devastated when what showed up wasn't what you expected. And here's the crazy part that I've found in my experience is the real thing that showed up could actually even be better than what I expected. But I just got so attached to my own expectations sometimes that I still felt the disappointment. Expectations are powerful, aren't they? I see this sometimes with my son, Ethan. You know, sometimes he'll get so fixated on what he wants. And I'll start to like kind of mess with him, and I'll start offering things better than that, and see, just see if I can get him off of that fixation. You know, guess what? He still wants the first thing, no matter how good the second thing is. I've, I've joked with you guys before about last year he chose the weird pig figurine when we were offering him like an actual pony ride. He's like, no, I just want this weird pig. What is wrong with you, right? Expectations. We get our hearts set on something. We're hard to tr- talk out of it, aren't we? Expectations are everything. And how many of you guys know that none are more important than the expectations we have for Jesus? In your life, in my life, there's no set of expectations that matter more than the expectations we place on Jesus, the Messiah. We all have those things, those things we want him to do for us, those things that We believe he owes us even sometimes, it seems like. We just need to slow down and examine our hearts from time to time. And we need to let Jesus be who he really is. We need to let Jesus say what he really says. We need to let Jesus do what and what he continues to do in us. We need to come to the real Messiah, right? So on this Palm Sunday, I just want to challenge you as we get rolling here. Is he the Messiah to you or is he just your Messiah in your way? What are your expectations for Jesus? To the crowd, they actually used the identity of Messiahhood to sell him out. Say he's claiming to be something, but he isn't that. And, And funny thing about it, they act like they had nothing to do with this moment in Palm Sunday. But by that point, they made their decision. Their jubilant, hopeful hosannas turned to cries of crucify him. That's not him. That's not our guy. He's an imposter. 
He's dangerous. Jesus didn't live up to their standards. And they remain blinded to what he was actually doing in their midst. That incredible week we call Holy Week. But let's be quick to consider the warning of Palm Sunday here about our own expectations, because we do all have them. Let's allow the story of Holy Week to challenge us. No matter what versions of Jesus we might like or prefer, or what crown we've picked out for Jesus to wear. Let's keep our eyes fixed on the real Messiah, amen? As we read through Holy Week this week, you're going to notice something about the crowd. If you're going to pick up your Bible and read and the gospel accounts, you'll notice something about the crowd. It sort of becomes its own character, the crowd, the people. In the narrative, the people get swept up into this frenzy of hype on Palm Sunday, and then their collective heart is turned by Friday, but it's like the crowd is its own character. I find that interesting because it's the same thing in our world, isn't it? You know, sometimes it's easier for you and me to be, you know, blending into the crowd too, to just kind of become the wallpaper and go with the flow in our world. Maybe sometimes it's easier even for us to let our expectations get set, let our allegiances get set by what the crowd wants. You know, groupthink is a real thing in our world, isn't it? Eugene Peterson says this, and I've quoted it before. I'll continue to quote it. I love it. He says, crowds lie. The more people, the less truth. We need to keep that in mind as we're reading about the crowd and the story of Jesus. But we also need to keep in mind the fact that in our world, in our time, there are a lot of crowds that we are part of, blend in with, flow in and out of on a daily basis. Physical crowds, digital crowds, you know, we have a lot of crowds in our time that inform us on things, shape our ideas about things. We're not short on groups that want to inject their agendas and their priorities and make it our primary focus in our day. Crowds are still out there. But if we want the truth, if we want the real thing, if we want our heart's real desire, what we were made for, there's no substitutes. We need to go to the source, the way, the truth, and the life, and it's only found in Jesus, the real deal. Amen? So let's resolve to let Jesus be the true Messiah. Let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith again, and let him be the one to order our steps, order the priorities of our hearts. The crowd on Palm Sunday is kind of like adventures in missing the point, Right? They inserted their own agenda for Jesus. But this is something I love about Jesus. Jesus, he was not confused about what was happening for a second. Don't you just love that about Jesus? It doesn't matter whether people are down on Jesus or up on Jesus. He's just even keel steady. He's got his eyes fixed on what's coming. He's never confused even for a moment. He's never swayed by the crowd or their crown that they want to crown him with. Not for a moment. Look at the moment with Mary anointing him with the very expensive perfume. He says, you know what she's doing in this moment? Guys, she's preparing me for my real purpose. She's preparing me for what you don't know what's coming, but I know what's coming. She's preparing me for the crown I choose to wear for you. This is the way I come into real kingship. It's not what's expected. And Jesus, how many of you guys know in that moment, just like in our moment, there's all kinds of expectations for Jesus. Jesus, a lot of times, defies all of them, like he does in Palm Sunday, with the unexpected sacrifice that would bring us back to the Father again. Amen? 
Zechariah prophesied about the Messiah on his triumphal entry. And he uses a word that we read twice here already, lowly. Lowly the Messiah was, a lowly Savior. Literally, it means to be afflicted, to be humble. And you know what? You see that in Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. But it's a little bit different than the conquering king of the crowd's imagination. He's got a different temperament, a different demeanor about Jesus. Leslie Newbegin picks up on this, and he says this. If we take Zechariah's passage as a whole, it's clear that the triumph of Yahweh will not be brought about by military power in Israel. It is thus a prophetic word against the kind of political messianism represented in the popular reception which Jesus is receiving at Palm Sunday. The familiar Palm Sunday hymn has rightly captured the meaning of Jesus' actions. He rides in on, or on in majesty, but it is majesty not of this world. In lowly pomp, he rides on to die. Jesus wasn't confused for a moment. He was burdened by what was before him. As he wrote in, Luke tells us, he wasn't all winks and smiles for the crowd, waving and, you know, making sure he cheers the crowd up at the right moments or plays to the crowd in any way. He wept, Luke tells us. He wept. He knew all that was to come that week and far beyond for the inhabitants of the city he loved, for the people he loved so much, so dearly. He knew everything that was coming. He was burdened by it. But he wasn't swayed for a moment. He had set his face set his heart on this purpose to set us free. He knew the cost, but he came to be the true Messiah for us. Messiah, it literally translates to anointed one. Anointed one. First of all, what does that mean? What does anointing mean? Do we ever use the word anointing outside of a church setting in our culture? Like some of you guys know the word anointed, but if you had never come to church, you'd never hear that word, right? What does anointed mean? What is the significance of anointing? You know, I think that we ought to ask that if Messiah means anointed one before we consider who Jesus is to us. Literally, anointing means to smear something on someone or something, usually oil. And it's a symbolic gesture to set someone or something apart as holy, to set apart for a purpose or a calling. And it also marks somebody as God's representative. You see anointing for priests. We see anointing for the kings of the Old Testament. It is a special mark of God's empowerment by his spirit, the oil representing the spirit of God, to flow over them. You see, the crowd in this moment, they wanted him to become a very different king than who Jesus had in mind. They couldn't understand the anointing upon him, what he was about to do for them. But Jesus made it crystal clear at the banquet in Bethany when John ties it together with the triumphal entry as we read this morning. And I love that John puts this banquet right before the riding in to Jerusalem because it's, it's a more intimate setting with the same big question being asked. And it gives us a look at two ways we encounter Jesus sometimes. And I want to let two characters, two familiar faces speak to you and me today in a more intimate setting. The first person we see is Mary. We see her actions as she anoints Jesus with this perfume. And you know, from the very first time we meet Mary of Bethany in Scripture, 
She is someone who comes to Jesus with a pure heart of worship, right? She just is infatuated with Jesus. She has a pure love for Jesus. No matter what he's doing or not doing, she just wants to be with him all the time, right? That's Mary of Bethany in Scripture. And in this moment, she makes a prophetic declaration for the ages. That's what Jesus said. It would be remembered. Anywhere this gospel is preached, they will remember what she did. She makes a huge, huge prophetic statement in this moment of devotion, you know, really personally, she was recognizing something. She was recognizing there is absolutely nothing in my life that he is not worthy of. There is nothing that I want to hold back from him. I want to go to whatever lengths I can go to to declare and display my love for Jesus. That's Mary. That's how she came to him. And Jesus said in this moment, her actions were more important than even she knew because she was anointing him for his death and his burial, for him to actually fulfill the calling for which he came. It was different than what they expected. And we see that in the second character, because right after she does this action, there's an uproar from the others. You know, but calmly, Jesus says, don't stop her. Don't stop this moment. Among the uproar is Judas, isn't there? Judas Iscariot, whom John actually chooses the name especially here. John doesn't have any problem outing people for things, right? He's like, Peter's slow. Judas is a wreck and stealing things. Like, you know, he's the whole way through. John names Judas. The other disciples and people who wrote didn't name Judas. But John's like, no, it was Judas. Jesus is like, don't stop her. But Judas objects to the foolish extravagance of Mary. Oh, we could have used this for the poor. We're commanded to use our money for the poor, right? So what is she doing? Jesus, stop her. And he's like, don't stop her. This is important. If Mary shows us a heart that is so focused on Jesus that she practically forgets about everything else in her life, Judas kind of shows us the opposite, doesn't he? He's focused on everything else but Jesus in this moment. Judas really represents what we see in the crowd on Palm Sunday. The opposite approach to Mary's reckless devotion and passion is I've got plans for Jesus for my life, right? I've got a goal. I've got a crown for him to wear. We've got it all set up. We can't, we can't have anything to distract from the purpose we've got for him. See, for Judas, from the beginning, we see it was all about what Jesus could do for him. Mary, in this moment, shows us something better, which is to say, Jesus, you're worthy of everything. What can I do for you? It's a turning point for Judas here. Again, Leslie Newbegin gives us great insight. The extravagant devotion of Mary cannot coexist with the mean spirit which calculates the cost of everything. In Mark's account and Matthew's, it is the occasion for Judas's decision to turn traitor. Think about that. What's he saying? He's saying this moment where Jesus says, hey, hey Judas, just calm down. It's okay. We've got this. That's the moment where Judas, something solidifies in his heart to betray Jesus. Judas, like the other disciples, expected Jesus to start a political rebellion and overthrow Rome, says another commentary. Jesus' ministry was not going the way Judas had hoped. And when Jesus praised Mary for pouring out perfume worth a year's salary, Judas may have realized, hey, Jesus' kingdom was not going to be political but spiritual. Surely this frustrated him and made him angry. Reality is, Jesus wasn't fitting the mold for Judas either. 
Judas couldn't understand the anointing because he already had a crown picked out for Jesus as well. And this moment is kind of like the final straw for him. Judas decides as well, he's not the one. That's not my guy. That's an imposter. In reality, every character you're going to meet or see in the story of Holy Week, Matthew says the entire city asks one big question. They're all wrestling with one big, very important question. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Is he the one or is he just another guy? Who is he? See, the actions of Mary and Judas, they acted based on the way they were answering this question. One saw him as the real deal and responded in selfless devotion, the other with diluted selfishness. The crowd, well, the crowd continued to wrestle throughout this week with this question, who is Jesus? And as Jesus' time in the course of what he does in Holy Week for us. How many of you guys know that is still the most important question for us to ask ourselves? Who is Jesus? Who is he to me? Who is Jesus? As we look at the gospel during this special time, I want us to ask this question in our own hearts in a fresh way. I want to encourage you to answer that question for yourself. Who is Jesus to you? It's 2023. Who is Jesus in your moment? Who is Jesus in your family? Who is Jesus in your workspace? Who is Jesus to you? And if your answer sounds anything like, Ricky Bobby, you might be in trouble, all right? Famously, I like to picture my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because he's kind of formal, but also likes to party, right? You know why that joke is, it's, it's funny, but it's funny because there's a lot of truth in it. <laughs> this idea of my Jesus is a real idea in our world, isn't it? See, the crowd that day and the crowd in our day is more interested in my Jesus, my version of the Messiah, than the real deal a lot of times. You know, there are many versions of Jesus that we as human beings like to create in our own image. But this Easter, let's come back to the story. Let's fix our eyes on the real deal again. Let's let Jesus speak. Let's let his actions inform us on who he really is. Amen? I like what C.S. Lewis suggests. He says, you know what? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. By his own words and his own actions, he doesn't leave us any room for other options. It's one of those three things. He's either crazy, or he's lying to everyone, or he really is the real deal, the true Messiah, the one that we really need, even so sometimes we don't recognize how much we need a Savior. That's who he is. As we enter Easter time, I want us to hear this question as loudly as Jesus one time put it to Peter when he says, who do you say that I am? I don't care about what they say. Who do you say that I am? You know, part of that question is recognizing our expectations for him, right? What do we expect Jesus to do for us? What will we do when he defies those expectations? Is Jesus allowed to step out of line with our agenda for him? Hmm? What are we going to do in that moment? Are we going to pour our love on him like Mary? 
are we going to turn our backs on him like Judas and decide, you know what, he's probably just an imposter then. Maybe I read it wrong, right? question is this, what crown do we have picked out for Jesus? You know, as we move through Holy Week and focus on him, I want to encourage you to see Jesus for who he really is. I want to encourage you to kind of come to him in a fresh way, in a place of prayer, and just lay down any expectation or agenda you might have and say, God, I want you to show me a fresh revelation of your love. I want you to show me a fresh revelation of your heart. And God, I want to follow the real you. Let me lay down those other things. I let go of my expectations, and I simply come to you. Amen? In a moment, we're going to have communion, and I want to invite the the worship team to come back up. And if you didn't grab any communion elements, you can grab some from the lobby now. But let's just focus in for a moment. As we come to Easter, and we're here on Palm Sunday, I just want to encourage you, we all have crowns we want him to wear, but let's put those things away. Our intentions for him, let's lay those things down and come to Jesus like Mary. Instead of looking to what he can do for me, let's look at what he's already done for us. Amen? Let's say to Jesus again, I'm at your disposal. I belong to you. Everything, everything about me belongs to you, Jesus. What can I do for you? One of the ways that we can do this is to actually immerse ourselves in the story again. You know, if you want to ask the Lord, like, hey, I'm laying down my perceptions here. I want a fresh revelation, but you don't open the word. You're going to be struggling. So let's actually immerse ourselves in the story to commemorate and celebrate what he did for us and what he continues to do for us today. Another thing that he calls us to do is to stand united with his body around this gospel. Amen? That's what we do in the act of communion, and that's how we're going to close our service today. We're going to have a time of prayer, and there'll be people waiting to pray with you at the sides. If you got something the Lord's laying on your heart, or you just got something going on in your crazy week, like I have, and you want prayer, we would love to pray with you.